Almighty and everlasting God, increase in us the gifts of faith, hope, and charity, and that we may obtain what you promise, make us love what you command. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That is the collect appointed for today, October the 23rd, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. It's been a, um, a kind of a busy week. We had to, we ran over to Knoxville very quickly and took dinner to um, Suzanne's sister, Patricia, who had some surgery on her elbow uh, last week. Pretty serious surgery. Um, bad, bad MRSA infection, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so we took it over and had dinner with them, went for a little hike in the Smokies while we were there, which is probably a half mistake because while we were gone about 12 hours we were only with my sister-in-law and brother-in-law for two two of those hours um mostly what we did was sit in traffic in the smokies <laughs> and had this it was a nice hike though i will say that I had, that was a nice hike um had a frustrating day one day this week we were going to go hiking up um near mount mitchell uh, which is the highest peak um east of the mississippi and we got within probably, I don't know, three or four miles of where we were going, and the Blue Ridge Parkway was closed. And I said, well, let's go back and, and go to this, this other one that we had intended to do a few weeks ago. Got there, couldn't do it because there were so many people there. The first time we got up there, it was, I mean, incredibly foggy and really, really wet. And we were walking right along the side of the mountain. So I decided that wasn't a good plan that day. So yesterday, it was just unbelievably crowded up there. And it's because everybody got stymied trying to go everywhere else they were trying to go. But it is what it is, you know. So anyway, we're doing well. Um, kind of just moving along, trying to get things done and um, figure out what God wants next. So continue to pray for us in that way. I'd appreciate it. Um, lots going on in some ways, but not much going on in other ways. So anyway, just um, today, last week, remember what we primarily looked at was the uh, parable that Jesus told about the unjust judge who would give um, justice to the widow who kept imploring him um, simply because he, he didn't want her to keep bothering him. And then, so that was Jesus is, is imploring us to pray without ceasing and to never give up hope in doing that. But because what he says is, is that, that look at this guy, he, he neither fears God nor respects man, and yet he's going to give this woman judge. Don't you think your Father in heaven will give justice speedily to the elect? And so the, the word justice played a big role last week in, in everything we talked about today. What we're going to hear about is the other side of this, which is mercy, right? We live because of grace. Because we are all um, fit for death, because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And so we stand under judgment, except Jesus took all that on himself. We stand under the judgment of we take this on ourselves. And then so what we've done is we've brought judgment on ourselves as soon as we deviate from God's word and God's plan for, for our lives. And so when we do that, then we... We bring judgment on ourselves. However, Jesus came and took all of that. He took the punishment on himself in order that we might share in his inheritance and that we might share in his eternal life. That's not justice. That's mercy. So the, the good news is, is that, that we have a God who is both a God of justice and of mercy. And it's important that we keep those two things in tension all the time. Because justice will be done. You know, We should want justice to be done. And it will be, ultimately. There will be justice on the earth. Wickedness will be wiped out. All those things will be gone, and, and we'll live in a perfected world as perfected humanity. 
<clears throat> and so what we what we plead for is mercy, while at the same time we don't lose sight of the need for justice because there's injustice, and injustice begs to be righted, and it will eventually be righted. And we can we can base all our hopes, all our dreams, and all our lives on the fulfillment of that in this life, or we can leave it to God, and we can we can let it go, and then then we can become the kind of people who aren't cursing other people all the time. We are instead praying for those people. Um, it, it happens that this week I, I, I prayed for uh, the outcome of a of a uh, a court hearing. And in the midst of that, what, what I realized was is that I had not been praying for the person who was on the other side from my friend. And so I began to pray for her, and I began to pray for the judge in the case. And so it, it's, it's the thing that we need to be able to do in our own lives is, is to make the move from justice to mercy in the same way that God does and, and take the long view of things. Because that's, that's when justice is done in the end. There, there's a recapitulation of all things. But in then, we're not going to see full justice in our own lives. There are things in our lives that, that are unjust, things that have happened to us that should never have happened to us. And those injustices don't always get taken care of in this life. It's just the way it is. It, this life, it, it should point us to the briefness of life and point us to the place where we don't carry out just this bitterness in our heart all the time. Um, we've got to give other people way more mercy than, than we're inclined to do. And so today what we want to look at is, is how God treats us, his children. Now, how does that work? And then as recipients of his mercy, then we need to be really good at, at, at extending that same mercy to others. So in the first passage, what we have is Joel, the prophet Joel. Nobody knows exactly when Joel was. That nobody can pin down dates because he doesn't name kings and things like that. So he doesn't name people, so there's no way to kind of triangulate his time. So just be aware of that. But, but at the same time, it, it seems likely that this is sometime around the Babylonian exile period, and you'll see why. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. In other words, what he's saying is, is that the, the times are changing. We've just come into a season, actually, in the Jewish cycle of prayer and reading, where they, they change a little thing in their prayers for a long period of time. Because remember, you're, you're dealing with uh, a, a geography which is dependent on rain. But, but it, it's not the kind of rain we typically get here, like where I live, which, which is you know, sporadic and, and just whenever. No, th- these, these would have rainy seasons. So there would be a time when it was supposed to rain. And if it didn't rain, that it would ruin the crops. I've been in Rwanda and seen the effects of, of extended droughts in various parts of that country and then seen what happens when, when the rainy season begins. It's one of the most amazing things you'll ever see in your life. I, there was a tree in the back of the, um, the guest house where I was staying, and, and I'd never seen it, other, it as other than a barren tree. Well, it started to rain, and I, I mean literally overnight, the thing leafed and bloomed, and, and the smell, the fragrance of the blooms was unbelievable, how sweet it was. It was called a frangipangy tree. So that happened, and then these bugs came out. They looked like big mosquitoes, but they didn't sting or bite or anything like that. So the, all these new life came out 
because of that rain, and it, and it made everything fertile. And so that's exactly what's happening here, because Joel's saying, hey, check it out, rejoice in the Lord your God, because he's given the early rain for your vindication. And so he, he's saying, it's happened, it's happened. He's poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, as before, before the drought thing happened. And so in, in the Jewish prayer cycle for a long period of time, when it's not rainy season, you don't pray for rain. No, you thank God for the dew. And then when it's time for the rain, you begin to pray for the rain. Everything has its own season. That's Ecclesiastes, right? So then, then he says, The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. So God says, I'm going to restore everything that was taken during that time of judgment that was upon you. And I was the judge. You need to understand that. This is not some random occurrence. No, I sent them. I I was judging you, and I took away that because I wanted you to return to me. I wanted you to repent of your sins. I wanted you to see that I was angry, largely because I wanted you to come back. I mean, it's that simple. Uh, This restoration of that is mercy. That's mercy, that God's restoring what was taken. That's mercy. It's not deserved judgment was deserved. Mercy is the restoration of those things that were taken away during that period of time. God says the judgment on was the locust is what you deserved for your sins. Now I'm restoring even that which was taken then. He says you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Well, to have somebody deal wondrously with me can't possibly mean that I got justice. It has to mean more than that. So he has dealt wondrously with you, and Joel's telling us exactly how wondrously God is dealing with these people. He says, my people, and this is God speaking now, my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I'm in the midst of Israel, and that I'm the Lord your God, and there's none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. So you got this... um, refrain that brackets the two things God says, and that is that, that he says, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God who's dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never again be put to shame. That's a promise of God. It's the refrain. You shall know that I'm in the midst of Israel, and that I'm the Lord your God, and there's none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. So you'll eat in plenty. You will praise the name of the Lord your God who's dealt wondrously with you, you, and you won't be put to shame. Then you'll know that I'm in the midst of Israel and that I'm the Lord your God and there's none else, and the people will never be put to shame. So they'll, they'll have these three things that they'll get out of this. They'll, they'll have the things that they want and desire and need. They'll also have God in their midst, and they'll know that he is the Lord their God and none else. And it shall come to pass afterward that I, God, will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So what's he saying here? In the past, how has he dealt with with people? How has he dealt with his nation? And how has he distributed the Holy Spirit? Right? So he distributed to the prophets and the leaders. Period. End of sentence. Remember when Moses is told to go and get 72 of the leaders and bring them before the Lord, and the Lord will take some of the spirit that he put on Moses, and he will give it to those elders. And then there's a couple that they didn't elect who are out in the camp, Eldad and Medad. They're apart from these 70, and then they get it. 
So God distributes as he will, but but it was not generally given to people. He gave um, Bezalel and Aholiab the gift of the Holy Spirit to execute the work necessary to create the tabernacle. He gave it to the prophets, his Holy Spirits, but he didn't pour his spirit out on all flesh. This is superabundance. It's sort of like when Jesus is um, at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, did they actually need as much wine as he produced that day? No, but what it showed is this is the fulfillment of a time like Joel promised. There's a superabundance of God that's happening in this place. And so what he's telling them through the prophet Joel is there's going to come a day something like you've never even imagined before. Not only have you not seen it, not only has no one ever seen anything like it, nobody's even imagined this, that he's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. It's an amazing thing that God promises this. And this is afterwards. What is the afterwards is he talking about when he says it shall come to pass afterwards? What it is is you'll eat in plenty and be satisfied. You'll praise the name of the Lord your God. You will uh, know that he's in the midst of them, and you will know that he alone is God. And after that, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. That, that's the second thing. The, the true, uh, so you, there's a superabundance in, in the natural. And then he says that after that will become a supernatural abundance. So you have natural abundance in your crops. And that'll cause you to praise me and to know in truth that I'm the Lord your God and that I'm in your midst. And then after that, I'll give you supernatural abundance. I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And I'll show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. What is the great and awesome day of the Lord? Well, it's the day of judgment. And we see these same kinds of signs listed in the book of the Revelation later. And so God says, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to show myself, not, I'm going to show myself to you in a couple of different ways. One is, I'm going to provide natural abundance. A harvest is going to be so great, it's going to be unbelievable. And then after that, I'm going to do supernatural abundance among my people. Then, he says, then I'm going to do these signs for the rest of the world to see before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Why is that? So that people can turn to him, so that they will know. They'll begin to ask the questions, what is happening here? And they'll turn to him, and they'll say, I repent. And so they'll be saved from the day of judgment. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivals, survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. There's always been this idea within Judaism uh, uh, that, the, that only a remnant would be saved. It wouldn't be everyone. It would be a remnant of the people. And they had good reasons for that because they'd seen remnants before, right? They had seen remnants of those who survived the time in the wilderness, They'd seen remnants of those who came back from Babylon. They had seen this again and again and again, that judgment then weeds things out. Jesus tells the parable, the wheat and tares, for that very reason, to show that not all who claim him are going to be saved. We, we have cheapened salvation. We have cheapened grace so much it's absolutely unbelievable. We, we say that if you've made a one-time confession that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, and that he came and died on a cross, 
in order to take on our punishment, in order that we might take on his righteousness and have eternal life. There, there are people who come to believe that saying that one time is all you need to do. And, and it's destructive to believe that. No, we have to call Christians to be Christians. Just because you believe something one time doesn't mean it changed your life. It's intended to change your life. It's intended to show itself in a reformed, transformed life. Those two things have to go together. We, we can't continue to give people hope based on a one-time statement that they made. It, it's, it's not right. God's people were God's people, right, at Sinai. Were all God's people God's people? Or did he judge those people? Did many of them die in the wilderness? Here, he says, some. And, and we've got to stop giving people false hope because what you once said you believed. So in, in the parable that Jesus tells here, remember last week he told a parable um, that, about the unjust judge. Today, he tells a different parable. So it, this is, he told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. All right, so what's his righteousness? What is his claim to righteousness here? Two things, basically. One is I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all I get. Is, is that literally what God wants from us? That's, that's the sum total of what God wants for us and from us? You tithe and you fast? Okay, well, what about justice? What about mercy? What about all the other things the law calls you to do? Well, then you judge others, which is exactly what Jesus tells us not to do. Because if we judge others, then we'll be judged. If we forgive others, then we'll be forgiven, right? So here, what does he do? He starts out by comparing himself with others, with, well, other fallen humanity. Well, that's not the comparison, right? We're created in the image of God. And so how are you doing living up to the image of God? Is fasting twice a week and, and, and um, tithing the image of God? Is that imaging God to other people? Wow. Dude, you do without a little bit. Right. So here, what he does, he begins by, by setting up the, the point of comparison. And so he's choosing that I'm righteous compared to, well, you know, extortioners, people who are unjust, people who are adulterers or even like this tax collector. Well, so I'm better than these guys. Therefore, I must be good enough because I also, in addition to that, I fast and I tithe. Well, bully for you. I'm absolutely certain. That's not God's standard for righteousness. That is not what God means at all. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount tells us exactly what God's standards for righteousness are. And, and that's a, a changed heart and a changed life. I mean, he says you can be an adulterer without actually having sex with a woman. That's not your wife. You can do that by having lust in your heart. You, you can do all these things without outwardly doing them. And so when you set yourself up to judge, well, I'm going to judge you by the standard you've chosen. So Jesus says, yeah, you probably are guilty of adultery. Quite likely that you're guilty of that. So all these things 
he lists, uh, you know, I'm comparing myself to, to people who everybody could acknowledge are bad. I, I think, I'm thankful I'm not like these guys. Yeah, and Jesus says, well, what's in your heart? What's in your heart? You know, he looks at this tax collector and points him out. He says, so, the, but, but then the tax collector stands a long way off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I know who I am. I know what I am. I'm a sinner. But I know who God is, and he's merciful. Otherwise, there's no reason to pray, right? There's not a single reason for this guy to pray if God's not merciful. If God's a God only of justice, then there's no reason for him to pray because he's a sinner. He can't pray for justice. If, you, if a sinner prays for justice, then what we're praying for is, Lord, kill me now. Take my life. Because it's an abomination to you. And so here, what he says is he asks God to be who, he, who God says he is, and he's merciful. And so during Advent this year, for the first uh, couple of weeks of Advent, I'm, I'm going to do a special series on what are called the 13 attributes of divine mercy. And where they find these comes from uh, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, right? So, so what you get there is, is the— um, the Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. They see in that 13 attributes of divine mercy. And these are 13 things we can pray for and thank God for. But but it shows us the 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 depth and the breadth of God's mercy. And so I'm doing this series on, on those things. So when does this happen? It happens right after the sin of the golden calf, when God had originally proposed to destroy the people for making the golden calf and making a new nation out of Moses. And so at that time, Moses prevailed upon God not to do that, not to destroy the people and start all over again with him. No, he prays by asking God to remember his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He depended on God's faithfulness. He recognized the people deserved to be judged, but he reckoned that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob deserved something different, and therefore he pleads on behalf of them for God not to destroy the people. So then, after that, God says, okay, I'll relent from that disaster I proposed, but, Moses, I'm not going to go with you. It's not safe for me to go with you because you're also sinful. And so it, it was after this that, God, that he goes and sees the people and, and fusses at them and breaks the, the tablets, smashes the golden calves, um, pours it out, and then, and then makes them drink this stuff with the, with the, the material from the calf in it. Then, then he goes back and God makes that revelation that I read for you in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And so what does he do? What is Moses' response to God's self-revelation of his mercy? He says, If I've now found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it's a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. He's not pleading anymore on the basis of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's pleading on the, on the question of, Have I found favor in your sight? And now I know who you are, and so I'm asking you to pardon our iniquity and our sin. Well, did Moses sin? Not with the golden calf, but, but he considers himself one of the people when he does that, and good leaders always are going to do that. 
right? They're not going to stand apart from the people and accuse them before God. They're going to stand before God and identify themselves with the people and plead for forgiveness and mercy because that's who God is. And so this pharisaical leader stands before God and condemns his brothers, including the man who's standing there. The man comes and stands before the Lord by himself and doesn't, doesn't compare himself to extortioners, adulterers, and all that stuff. No, he, he just says, I'm a sinner. And so what happens, right? So Jesus says, which one of these guys do you think went down to his house justified rather than the other? And that's the tax collector. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And we're told that Moses was the most humble man on earth. And so what, what did he do? He humbled himself and aligned himself with God's people when he came before God. When he went to the people, he aligned himself with God and said, God's really angry, and so am I, about what you've done here. This is wrong. And so what you could say about Moses' reaction, the initial reaction to God's uh, declaration that he was going to destroy the people that's based in justice right justice based in the promises god made to abraham isaac and jacob who at some level deserved those i guess and the second was based in in god's mercy you know we all kind of default to this whole idea of karma right so you get what you put out there well that that's been Traditionally, the, the way that everything is thought to have worked in, in religion, philosophy, and everything else is just that there's this balancing that happens. There's a justice. There's an injustice. I mean, so there's got to be a justice over here. Well, because it, it's completely based in justice. Karma is. Christianity is based in mercy and grace, but also promises justice in the end. But in the meantime, there's an opportunity for us to repent and, and, and not pass under judgment. And so... It's, it's important that, that we have justice, but we, we recognize that, that our ability to question God, our ability to ask the question, um, how could a good God allow such things, begs the, the main question, which is, well, the good God is a merciful God, not a God of justice only. And, and so if he's a good God, then he's got to have mercy as an essential part of his character. Justice has to win in the end, but mercy has to be an essential part of his character. And by asking the question, what you're doing is you're, you should acknowledge, in even asking this question, I'm, I, my life is a testament to God's goodness and his mercy because I don't deserve to be here. So when we ask that question, how could a good God allow such things, then the first thing we have to ask is, how could a good God allow me to live as a sinner? like this Pharisee doesn't do, and the tax collector does. Pharisee has no idea that he needs mercy. He considers himself to be better than other men, and that's his only point of comparison is with these other men, and he chooses the worst part of society to compare himself to. And he feels better about himself, but Jesus says he, he might feel better about himself, but he's not justified because he didn't confess his sins. He didn't confess his sinfulness. He didn't ask for God's mercy. We can't self-justify. We need to ask for God's mercy as well, and we need to be then those who give mercy. Paul, in this passage to, to Timothy, which is 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8 and 16 to 18, he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. I'm, I'm giving away everything I have. I'm pouring it out. And at the time of my departure now has come. I have fought the good fight. We think he wrote this from prison. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
that's the most important thing that we do, right? That we fight the good fight, finish the race, and keep the faith. In other words, I don't ever deny Jesus. And, and, and I, not only do I not deny him, I proclaim him. Every time I'm given an opportunity, I proclaim him, he says. That, that's what it means to Paul to keep the faith. No matter what happens to me, I will continue to proclaim him as good and great. I'm never going to cease doing that. No matter what my situation might be, if they stone me, if they beat me, if they throw me into prison, any of those things doesn't matter. In all those situations, he says, I've kept the faith. Oh, that it would be so. That it would be so with us as well, brothers and sisters. His fourth, he says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also who have loved his appearing. He says, that crown of righteousness, that's not over there because of anything I've done. Nope. It, it's because I have loved the appearance of the Lord Jesus. And, and the reality is he didn't always love that. There's always hope that God will reveal himself and call us to himself. None of us can rely on our own brilliance or our own insight or our own you know, sort, sort of understanding no, because without the Holy Spirit, we don't recognize Jesus at all. We certainly don't love his appearing. We don't even care. We, th- we think he's a great teacher. We think he's a whatever. But no, loved his appearing. Paul says loved his appearing. This, this is a strong word. It's a very strong word. And, and it's the way we as Christians need to live. We need to, to show that we love Jesus and we long for his coming again. Paul says, look, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me but all deserted me who else did that happen to it happened to jesus everybody fled he says at my first offense no one came to stand by me all deserted me and we know that paul could be a little bit uh touchy on such subjects he got pretty upset with people who weren't there when he needed them to be who betrayed him in his mind and left him but we also know that here while paul's in prison he's thinking through these things and he's he's praying through these things he says all deserted me and you can imagine what the next sentence might be right at my first defense no one came to stand by me but all deserted me you know and so he could say to hell with them literally no he says may it not be charged against them He's not praying for justice. He's praying for mercy for those people in the same way that Jesus prayed for mercy when he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know what they do. The ones who are killing him, persecuting him, all that stuff. That's what Paul's doing here. That's exactly what Paul says. May it not be charged against them. He's saying, I forgive them, and I'm asking God to forgive them as well. It's the same thing that Stephen did. Paul saw the stoning of Stephen. We know that because he stood by and held the cloaks. He saw that, and it made an impression on Paul. Because not only did Jesus have the ability to do that, the spiritual strength necessary to do that. He says, no, I saw that in Stephen too. And so now I'm praying for forgiveness for those who abandoned me and who betrayed me in my hour of need. Paul's being merciful because he's been changed by God's mercy because he knows that he deserved to die. And he knows that when Jesus appeared to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. Paul knew that he deserved to die at that moment. Paul recognized that he was a recipient of great mercy. And so now what does he do? He preaches the great mercy of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then what does he do here as he's preparing to die? He forgives those who betrayed him. He says, they didn't stand with me, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. When those people came and persecuted me and and tried to say all manner of evil against me falsely, he said, God stood with me. Even though nobody else did, God stood with me. And he delivered me. 
because he had a purpose for my life. And that purpose was to go and proclaim the message among the Gentiles as well and spread the gospel as far as I might do. He says, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. He says, they were going to kill me. But just like Daniel, when Daniel was thrown in the lion's den for failing to worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, then what happened, right? What happened was is that, that he rescued him from the lion's mouth. He threw him in the den of lions, and, and he, he came out safe. Paul said, it was the same with me. It was the same with me. They were going to tear me apart. They were going to kill me. They were going to destroy me. And yet God rescued me from the lion's mouth, no less than he did with Daniel. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. He's not talking about his own evil deeds. He's talking about other people's evil deeds against him. He'll rescue me from every evil deed and bring me into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul proclaims this great gospel for himself. He proclaims it about himself and for himself, but he recognizes that has to transform him into a person who extends the mercy that he's received. That, that's who we have to be. We're, we're forgiven as we forgive. Jesus is very clear about this. It's a wonderful thing, and we're called to exhibit that same character trait as the one whose image that we're created in. He says, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be called sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Well, I can be kind to those who are grateful and good. It's God who is great, kind to the grateful and the evil. Who are the grateful and the evil? Well, it used to be me. Ungrateful, I'm sorry. Ungrateful and evil. And a lot of times, you know what? I can still be wildly ungrateful. And so God's kind, though. And what does his kindness look like? Well, his kindness looks like forbearance, and it looks like the giving of the Holy Spirit so that I can agree with him on the fact that I really am ungrateful and evil. And I can see my sin in the same way in the parable the tax collector sees himself. I'm a sinner. He's not asking for forgiveness for specific sins here. He's just saying, I am a sinner. It's my identity. If you don't forgive me, if you don't pardon me, if you don't restore me, if you're not merciful to me, then I'm no more than a sinner in your sight, undeserving of life. And so that's the way we approach God. We don't compare ourselves to other people. We compare ourselves to Jesus. And then in that comparison, we can see the truth about what real righteousness is. And we can see that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need to see it. We need to know these things. God says he wouldn't go up with the people. Moses pleaded with him, look, if you don't go up with us, we're all going to die. This is not going to happen. We'll never, ever conquer the land. And it's the truth. What we need to pray for is God will be with us and go with us. We need to pray the prayers that say, hey, we need you to be like you were and like you promised that you would be to Joel. We need you to, to provide for us. Eat in plenty and be satisfied. Then we need to praise the name of the Lord. Because he's dealt wondrously with us. We've received mercy. And then we'll never again be put to shame. And God will be in our midst. And that he is the Lord our God. We need to pray those things for every one of us. We need to pray that for every person. Not that they just come to know, but they come to love the appearance of the Lord Jesus. And they worship him. Those things are important. Those are the things that we need to pray for people. Not just that they'll get saved, but they will be fully saved. 
and they will fall in love with the Lord Jesus and that they will then join us in the proclamation of him. Let's not cheapen grace. Grace is amazing, amazing, amazing. Let's not cheapen it. No. Grace is either amazing or it's not grace at all. 